Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 14 of The Learning Curve. I am Kara Kandel here with my co-host, Bob Bowden. Um, and Bob, you know, I was just I was trying to think of a witty intro. <laughs> I've got so little to say other than about the flu and the cold and snow up here in Boston. Oh. But I know, Bob, that you have been thinking deeply, for example, about the end of the decade, you told no, me. No, I have no. So, but you, so you have on me. What's, what, what are your deep thoughts for this week? <laughs> you don't have the flu, do you? Are you I sick? do not have the flu. My children have the flu. Oh. So nobody. Um, yeah. Sorry to my colleagues here who just learned that and have been talking to me all day. But all right. So we we're just a few. Just briefly, Kara. Before we get into, you know, we're a few weeks from finishing this decade. I just it just dawned on me. We're a few weeks from the end of the decade, and I call it. I'm calling it the teens, but then some people are like, oh no, like 10, 11, and 12 aren't teens. So, and I looked up Wikipedia's entry for this decade. They call it the 2010s. That's the well, name. But what did the millennials say, Bob? Because I don't think they're saying either of that. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. But here's here's my thought. I like I was just thinking how much less happened in this decade compared to the last decade. And I and I, I, I for whom? So so let's table politics for a second. But like let's the, the last decade, the aughts. What did that give us? Smartphones, Facebook, Twitter, and the entire concept of social media. And, and the like button, the very dangerous like button. The like button, media. all kinds of other big events like 9-11 and the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. But things like full-frame DSLR cameras, most of the Sopranos. I'm just saying the last decade gave us smartphones, Facebook, Twitter, all kinds of wars, all kinds of stuff going on. This decade, what do we get? Planking, the ice bucket challenge. You know, we get... Uh, Planking. <laughs> I'm going to say we got a little bit more than that. And, and, and uh, some, not, pretty much not so cheery things that also come to mind. But I would say that I, for one, would be generally in favor of like an upcoming tranquil decade, some some peace, some harmony, some 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 love out there in the world, Bob, some people getting along that that's what I'm looking for. Okay, let's, so this, let's let's welcome in the, a tranquil decade. Well, I see. I swear, my, my point is, compared to the last one, this one was much more tranquil than the last one. Right, the, let's continue. It had less change. So, all right, here we go. And so, uh, it, and now we get to talk about the decade in review in education, or is that maybe that's next week? But. Yeah, co coming up a little later, the great Joy Pullman will be the uh, editor of the Federalist. Will be our guest, and just or my guest, in just a little bit. But first, let's talk about a few stories. And um, the first one is called Inefficient but Equitable Denver Bus Routes Address Imperfect Student Choice Options. Now, this is about the transportation problems the city of Denver is having. They quoted Albert Samora, Denver's new executive director of transportation for the school district, saying, we're starting to deal with smaller populations, not less important, just smaller populations of students. He means choice is complex because we still have boundaries. I can't just take a student from the Northeast and bring them to the far corner of the Southwest and expect that student to succeed because they have to spend an hour and 15 minutes on the bus each direction. More than half of Denver schools are attended by populations that are 90% racially homogenous. By the Denver Post's count, almost 55% of Denver students would have to be moved to different schools to achieve diverse racial demographics. Uh, and so, so that's the essence of what the story is. Uh, Carrie, your thoughts on what Denver is doing to help to, to, to use more ways of transportation, not just old style buses, but shuttles. And I think, listen, I think it's phenomenal. 
Bob. And I think so. And this is this is, as the article points out, one of those conundrums that comes with choice, because we do have to figure out it. And it's also a reminder that so much of this country is just geographically dispersed. Right. So it's hard to get kids from point A to point B. And I'm betting that people who work even in large, like urban condensed school districts see transportation as as the biggest thing. I mean, a couple of years ago here in Boston, we had a, a with some now referred to as the school start times debacle. So much of that was dependent on transportation. I believe it was like engineers from MIT working on it. But, you know, so my take on this, I'm going to give you a personal example here. So okay. my kids attend a school that is in, in, in most people's lives, this would be nothing. It's like five miles away from the house. But, um, but in Boston terms, that's like a lot of time in traffic. Like, let me okay. tell you. And even if I take them on the subway, it's a big hassle, et cetera, et cetera. And for working parents, it's a big deal. And one of the things that popped up around here was a small like Uber for kids service Mm -hmm. with like vetted drivers. And, you know, you could watch your kid in the camera. And my kids loved it because they got like the sugary snacks that I don't give them at home, all of that stuff. (laughs) And I think that one of the things that um, we're going to see cropping up in the near future. Diabetic children poisoned on the way to school. Okay, go ahead. You support this. Yes. You know, sometimes they need a little candy. I'm not going to lie. It's it's bribery in many cases. But, you know, what I think we're going to see are innovations that are going to have to rise up. We've seen this just in in our culture, generally speaking, but schools are going to have to start either embracing innovations or thinking of some of them on their own. And and school districts and states are going to have to start thinking about these challenges. And then, of course, you know, we could go on and on and talk about the other options that school choice brings with it. Increasingly, we're going to see more and more high quality virtual options or more hybrid options where maybe kids are doing things, you know, half the week from home and half the week at other places. But I think the transportation issue that's highlighted in this article, the, the reason I, I really liked this article is because I think it it brings to bear the really difficult problem that districts face. And this is just well, emblematic. No, just of, of second, Troy, it's, a, it's something we don't talk about enough. And, and I appreciate this article for actually doing a transportation choice story, actually saying in the article that since uh, referring to a U.S. Supreme Court in 1973 ruling ordering Denver to desegregate, and then this appears in the article, since the court lifted its sanctions in 1995, meaning it's desegregation order, school choice has become the main way students from different Denver neighborhoods mix. That choice is a driver of integration, and they make that point, and yet are also dealing with, you know, some of the logistical problems like transportation. I remember magnet schools, Bob, they were supposed to be choice as the driver for desegregation. So at least this article, it seems to be that it's working. The other, the one other thing I would throw in here that I would consider is just the, the cost of transportation. And so like as folks, as districts, as, as states are thinking through these issues, one of the things that folks don't, don't often consider when it comes to um, what it takes to run a school district or what it takes even to, to run a school, whether you're school of choice or whatever, is how you get kids where they need to be on time, et cetera etc. And I think that I'm looking for, like I said, these new innovative options that are going to be more effective all around. Story number two, uh, Pete Buttigieg, I think I pronounced that right, presidential candidate, unveils trillion dollar public education plan. Okay. So this this is a proposal that uh, uh, the the mayor, uh, the uh, the the uh, gee, where is it again in Indiana? It's South Bend, Indiana mayor, Pete Buttigieg proposal calls for investing Seven hundred billion to ensure universal early child care and pre-K for children from infancy to from infancy from infancy to five years old, and would ensure that no family pays more than seven percent of income in early learning costs. Yes. Also, so that's seven hundred billion. 
add to that, you know, ka-ching sound, uh, sound effect, uh, post, yeah. you know, three, another $300 billion in new federal funding for Tier 1 schools, increased salaries for educators, increased federal support for apprenticeships, community schools, arts education, and other 10 bits, $10 billion to study ways to combat racial and socioeconomic bias, another $2 billion for workforce development. I would say probably a few other billion for anonymous people to study things we'll never hear about. So he, he quote, he said, he said, quote, too often, this is the mayor, quote, too often access to education is predicated by income or zip code. Listen to that. Yep. And, quote continues, success can be determined before a child even sets foot in a classroom. Close quote. So Darn oh, oh, he zip He's code. right. So I ask you, uh, Ms. Kendall, your thoughts on a dollar federal education plan by the mayor. Listen, okay, so I know you're all in a tizzy about federal money, lots of it. But here's here's the thing. First of all, I'm super happy to finally hear a Democratic candidate who's got something of substance to offer that doesn't have to do with taking away parent choice. Number two, let's talk about early childhood education. Could we please have that conversation? Because we want to leave things to the states. We want to leave things to the states, but they are not doing it. And one very important role that the federal government plays in education is incenting the states to behave well or incenting the states to do the kinds of things that we should at least be trying. And he's right. Any parent knows that education starts long before kids set foot in the school room. And I think providing funds for early childhood education, especially providing providing incentives for the states to put more money into it is right on. I think that obviously I'm going to say that anything that would help us combat racial and systemic bias is a great thing. Hold on. Let me jump in. So, so the, so that maybe the states, you know, from infancy on, they can actually just do all, maybe actually if the parents are found to have said something wrong at home, maybe a politically incorrect, or maybe they are not going to well, Come on, Bob. More and more, more power, more what if, money. What if, what if his plan includes money to allow parents to access the tools and resources that they can use to educate their children better in the home? Because we're seeing a lot of excellent ideas out there, especially leveraging technology okay. that are helping rural parents in particular use use technology to learn how to better access to educate their infant okay, children, their true. preschool I'm, children. All right, listen. So why aren't, let me ask you a question. Here's a little question for you. I'll, I'll need 19 seconds for this question, which is probably actually. I'm giving you 17. 33. Why aren't, why, you know, riddle me this. Why aren't the states doing this? Why aren't they doing it right now? Even like a blue states, I don't know, Massachusetts, New York, California. Gee, they, they could don't. do all this. They could do this right now. What, maybe they don't have the money because they, what, they don't want to raise state taxes right now to pay for all this from, from the, the I'll tell you one state that's doing it. Oklahoma. If I got 14 more seconds, why they (laughs) they can't just tax the billionaires and the corporations right now for every penny of this money? I tell you what, you know what, and I'm sure I'm sure I don't know the title of it, but I bet I bet Eric Hanusha could if he hasn't done a study on this should the ROI and actually I think is who is it? Um, Barrett, somebody out out of maybe New Jersey, Um, the ROI on early investing in early childhood education is huge. And you know, it's huge because you know that middle class, upper middle class and wealthy parents are doing it. And the kids who get the short changed are the low income kids who get placed in Head Start, which is not by the way. administration's own study of Head Start showed you couldn't tell which kids by the third grade. Head Start is not early childhood education. Head Start 
Head Start is daycare. It is not early childhood education. Well, we are talking about incenting states you to provide it, not me. high quality early. Yeah, they, they can, all, all they can tweet at me. But we're talking geniuses. about incenting states to provide high quality early childhood education. Now, you didn't let me finish because, wait, I need my 12 seconds. Oh, I'll just take 12. The only, the only question I have about Mayor Pete's plan is he's saying, oh, we're going uh, to increase Title I funding. My concern then is where is the accountability piece? Because as we know, we've just been rolling back, rolling back, rolling back on any accountability for outcomes, for outputs, whatever you want to call it, uh, when it comes to federal programs. And that's been happening, you know, I mean, the Obama administration was much better on this, quite frankly. Uh, but under ESSA, we're seeing a lack of accountability. And I think that's got a lot of folks, including myself, worried. So that would be the question I would ask Mayor Pete if All he right. were well, sitting in front of me. I like accountability often from the feds. That just mean regs. Here's my here's my solution. My uh, my suggestion, I mean to say, for Mayor Buttigieg is that he uh, he should just rename this and call this the unlimited free stuff proposal. That way people would feel great. They'd be like free stuff. Let's I think we should invite Mayor Buttigieg to come on this podcast and yeah. talk to us, okay. and, and then you can pitch him that title. Okay. I would, I would love to sit down I would say, it. hey, a trillion? What's stopping you, Mayor? Make it a hundred trillion. Whatever. Just print the money. It's fine. We, who cares? We're taking would, would you rather him a la Senator Warren talking about just killing charter schools? This guy's at least giving us some ideas. So <laughs> there you have it. All right. Uh, after this uh, little musical interlude, I'll be back with my interview of the great Joy Pullman, and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I'm joined now by the great Joy Pullman. She is executive editor of The Federalist, also mother of five. I didn't know that. An author of The Education Invasion, How Common Core Fights Parents for Control of American Kids. She was previously the managing editor of the School Reform News, put out by the Heartland Institute, and assistant editor for American Magazine that the American Enterprise Institute puts out. She is a graduate of Hillsdale College. And by way of full disclosure, I should also say she's a trustee of the juggernaut education media group called Choice Media for which I work. Joy, thanks for being my guest on The Learning Curve. We appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. All right, so let's begin with this thing called Common. You know, it's the 10-year anniversary, or I'm, mm -hmm. so I'm told, of the Common Core. And um, I guess I should say my I should congratulate you on winning. <laughs> I guess that's how I would frame it. You, uh, I think you won, um, but... Uh, well, let's start a, right there. Did, did you win in this um, opposition to the Common Core movement? I mean, I think the answer is no, right? I think winning would have looked like replacing Common Core, repealing it, you know, and, and getting something better for American kids in place that would actually benefit them. I don't think it's really winning uh, for American kids to have been subject for the past five years um, for, you know, to an education regime that it regime is, that is obviously not accelerating their progress when that is badly needed. And the reason I said five years instead of 10 is that, you know, as you know, I'm sure, Bob, but maybe our listeners don't. Um, it's kind of a tricky timeline. So President Obama leapt right into pushing for uh, national curriculum and testing mandates right away in 2009. Um, but that didn't start trickling into the states until 2010 and 2011, and then wasn't fully in place until the 2015 school year. So, 
five years since the kids have been doing it in, in all the schools in the country, 10 years since it was announced as a national project. Okay, but the uh, when you say replaced by something better, you don't mean a different national one-size-fits-all curriculum, right? Well, no, I actually don't. I mean, I do I do think that there are better and worse, objectively better and objectively worse curricula. I am not one of these people who thinks that, oh, as long as you make a choice, any choice that you make will be good. That's just obviously not. I mean, it's not true in life. It's not true in curriculum. But I do not think, therefore, um, that the, the federal government or um, you know, it has has a right, or or is going to get things right if it imposes one thing from on high and everybody. So, I mean, even I mean, in a hypothetical world in which we didn't have special interest control and the problems with bureaucracy and all of the other kind of political problems that mean that almost anything that has nationalized control, like Common Core, is going to be at best mediocre and at worst horrific. Um, so even if we didn't have those political problems that made that the case, I mean, I think people have a right to make their own decisions for their own families about their kids, and they have the right to be wrong. Um, and so, you know, um, there's a lot of education decisions parents make that I would not make, but I do believe that, you know, I have a right to take care of my kids and they have a right to take care of theirs. theirs. And just at the danger of kind of reflecting back what you're already implying, I, I would uh, I would say that even some sort of optimal, if we could all agree on the single best curriculum that the entire, that mm-hmm, would be the, mm-hmm. the entire nation should That'd be objectively into. research proven, you know, <laughs> right. no, I would not support uh, having the federal government impose that on, on anybody. In right, fact, and that would then cut off the ability to innovate brand new things that could be even better than whatever. Well, I mean, and I'm committed to, you know, a certain style of education that I think is the best, but even within that, there's so many different ways of doing it really well. You know, so, so for example, I mean, I want kids to read classic literature, right, in, in school. But, I mean, I don't think that, I mean, th- there's so many options within classic literature. You know, you I can't say to a school, oh, you're not doing my favorite book in second grade or eighth grade or even at all, therefore you're a bad school. That's preposterous. You know, they, you know, they could be doing classic books that are absolutely great and just, you know, not the ones on my, my list, right? And they'd still be a really good school, Um, you know, so, and the same thing is, you know, true of all, all the other subjects. So, you know, even within, you know, uh, I, I think there's a hierarchy of better and worse educational practices and educational content. Um, but even within the ones that I think are the best, I mean, you just have to let people be free, you know, to actually, you know, uh, be people and, and make choices based on their own judgment. Yeah, well, I start out by saying, do, do you feel like you've won the Common Core, uh, you know, mm-hmm. issue? Because it's, well, you know, one measure, and we'll get off Common Core in a second, Troy, by the way. Just, but you're, you're so, you did write a book about it, and so you are known for it. The, um, you know, I would just say that one count, one metric or measure of Common Core's proliferation at one point were the number of states giving out these tests. There was the Park test and the yeah. SBAC test. And they had, and they were all, you know, there was this uh, big uh, scrum to see which test your state was going to be in and how quickly they were going to adopt it and push it out and all this stuff. How many states are still using those tests? What Do you know the count, what we're down to? I don't know that exact number, but I know, I mean, I mean, so it was more than 40 states at the outset. And we're talking about the possibly illegally federally funded nationwide Common Core tests that were meant to talk to each other, that were supposed to be computer only, um, and that also included what, again, possibly illegal federal creation of curriculum. Um, I mean, the federal government is barred from creating um, curriculum um, for kids, and it did that under the auspices of grants to these test-making organizations that were kind of quasi 
governmental groups. Anyway, so, you know, the majority, you know, vast majority, 40 plus states were, has signed on to these tests and they completely fell apart very quickly. Um, 2013, 2014, as they were rolling into schools, they, you know, just, they fell apart. Um, and so I, I know that the number is, I think it's, is in the low teens right now. Last time I counted, I think the number was like 14 to 18 and probably there's fewer states that are even doing that anymore. It's a shadow of itself, but I don't know at this moment, the exact number, um, still. And one of the political fallouts, I'd say political, maybe, uh, loosely, but <clears throat> one of the effects of that, it kind of created something of a internecine civil war, brother against brother in the ed reform world, right? Where some reformers were sincerely for school choice in various ways, but they were for Common Core and other mm -hmm. people supported school choice. And like you and me, we're <laughs> opposed to Common Core. And so it, uh, it uh, in, in a way, kind of kneecapped what had been a movement maybe mm -hmm. very early on in the decade, in this decade we're about to finish in two weeks or something. Mm -hmm. uh, they probably did harm even beyond the com Common Core oh, aspect. Oh, that's a good point. That's a great point. And that's one of the frustrating things. I mean, Common Core, I mean, it. I think I think of government mandates, you know, uh, well, not so, but one of the ways that I think about a government mandate is a tax on your time. It's the government saying, you know, you should not do what you decide to do with your time. You should do what we decide you need to do. So tax forms, like making them completely, you know, extremely complicated and, and time consuming. That is government not just taxing your money, but also taxing your time, requiring you to spend all the time to do your best to honestly fill out, you know, these forms that 40 different tax professionals will provide a different, you know, 40 different answers for what your ultimate bill will be. So yeah. the same thing is absolutely, yeah, I mean, that actually is a great point. It's absolutely true. And, and in fact, people in support of Common Core, I think it might have been Michael Petrilli himself who, you know, talked about Common Core sucking all the oxygen out of the room and education reform. I mean, because everybody was forced by the government to be complete. I mean, um, I cited in, in a recent article, I want I was like 80 percent, more than 80 percent, you know, if teachers say they, you know, overhauled at least half of their instruction to fit Common Core, you know, and it took in states are holding, you know, I, I attended a number of these teacher training sessions, you know, these workshops over the summer in services, you know, uh, teachers are going, you know, to, to training during the school. You're just massive amount of effort and, and hours that went into this and it completely sucked all of the not just money, but energy for being able to pay yeah. attention to or do anything else. And that's a complete tragedy because even if Common Core, I mean, it, I think it's too early to know for sure that it was negative, but it clearly has not been a positive for kids. But in that aspect, that is clearly a negative where it is taking away time that people could have used in much more productive ways. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of Mr. Petrilli, the, one of the more recent K-12 education trends is uh, known as social-emotional learning, S-E-L, as it's mm -hmm. called. And proponents include the Fordham Institute and Rick Hess and claim they claim it uh, – Advocates claim it could help open the door to a greatest focus on character education. So what is your take on social emotional learning? Well, I think it kind of depends. I mean, the, the, that is a, one of those terms kind of like outcome based education or standards based education that when it becomes trendy, a lot of people kind of rush to get their personal little gimmick or product or consulting to fit the trend, you know, so people will hire them, <laughs> you know, who are Googling for social emotional learning or whatever. So, it, you know, so that's kind joy, of joy. These are esteemed intellectuals. They don't uh, sell gimmicks. What are you talking about? I'm very uh, cynical about human nature. I know, you know, we're, we all do the same. People are people, right? Um, so, I mean, so it, it, 
it depends on what people mean by that. I think it, 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 you know, people mean different things by that. So for example, I mean, I tend to not be a real fan of bandwagon types of things. I do think that the social emotional learning, I mean, like common core, like every other reform idea, good or bad has a, a, a good impulse. I mean, I mean, it is absolutely true that American kids, many, many more of them are coming into classrooms unruly. I mean, we're there, we're, we have fewer, you know, married parent homes, um, and, you know, than ever before. Um, and, and we Which know it's virtually from, considered, let me just interrupt you. So it's virtually yeah. considered hate speech to say that to, you know, which is, I think, a, 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 just a terrible place we are in this country where it's, it's virtually considered hate speech towards single mothers to say fathers matter. Like just to say fathers yeah, are I mean, relevant. I mean, look, I'm a kid from a broken home. It affected me. If you talk to any, uh, you know, any other kid who has had, you know, f- problems going on with their parents, there's, it's, it's completely impossible for it not to affect them. You know, we have friends with kids, you know, regardless of what's going on between the parents, it, it just, it can't fail to affect the kids. So, I mean, even if parents are doing their best, which sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, you know, just, or, I mean, I also think like as a mom, I don't know how it would be possible. I mean, I have five kids, but I mean, even when I had one or two, you know, I don't, I couldn't understand how it would be possible to survive without the support of another adult human being to lean on, you know, especially when the kids are little, you know, so, I mean, and, and, Again, well, and just, I, to, just to interject an analogy here, the uh, yeah, you know, no one says it's hate speech against low-income parents to say correctly say that low-income families are correlated with more troubles in educating right, their kids. Problems. That's, yes, that that, that doesn't mean you hate every single low-income. No, I love these person. kids. I take I personally take care, you know, of these kids, you know, in in my local community. I mean, and I think it is an act of love to say the truth about them, which is that this it imposes hardship on kids. And the teachers can't control that. And so, I mean, even if the kids are getting a lot of help with that transition, which many don't, um, you know, uh, that still is something that they have to deal with for a number of years while they're kind of working out how to process that, you know, and they're, they're growing, you know, their emotions change, you know, even just normally through puberty and all of that. I mean, so all that's in the mix and teachers have to deal with that. And it is rough. I mean, so I get, I mean, and we also have, it's not just the family, I mean, family instability is really a big thing. It, it, it's something we don't talk enough about. Um, and I, I hate that it's taboo because, I mean, again, as, as, a, as a kid of that kind of environment, it hurts us, right? And it, for us it not hurts, to be able to say, like, it, yeah, hurts, it hurts the people we'd you like know, to help. It's unfair to us that we can't say the truth. I mean, but so, but then there's, you know, there's other things like, I mean, for example, where there's lots of talk about helicopter parenting, you know, or, you know, some, um, I mean, a lot of parents interfere with kids' emotional and, and, and their moral development or don't provide any moral guidance to kids at all, right? Um, and so schools are left having to pick up all the pieces for the kids and fill in in ways um, that really are parents' job, community's job, church's job, you know, and, and, and the kid, you know, fewer kids are going to church, there's fewer uh, parents available to the kids. And so, I mean, so then the schools do have these kids yes. who need some kind of emotional assistance and and that's just the reality. And so, I mean, it absolutely makes sense for, you know, if you're a teacher in that environment to say, wow, we've got to do something because we do need to do something. Something is needing to be done. Now, it is social emotional learning, you know, whatever that means to people. Is it really well proven? Are all of these different things being sold under that banner effective? No. (laughs) Um, But then I think the need is real, but I don't think a lot of the proposed, you know, magic elixirs for solving it or have a good track record of actually being helpful. 
Yeah, can we have a movement? I, you know, I would kind of rhetorically say, can we have a ask? Can we have a movement where we decide something might be good, but it's not coerced? It, like the healthy food movement, for example, Michelle Obama proposed, which I I think tons of kids are. Incredibly disturbed right. by you horrible diets, eating terrible, yeah. sugar-filled, yeah. and then caffeine. They have sugar and caffeine right. all, all morning right. long. Mountain and then, oh, doing their baby bottles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, oh, oh, guess what? We need Ritalin to calm them down after all the sugar right, and caffeine right, right. they've had. All. And and so I think healthy, you know, eating is of is course. a wonderful. It's this when you go to the next step and say, now we're going to force all this food on the schools. Or you so much healthy eating is defined for every single person as six, you know, tortilla chips at lunch. Right. That might work, you know, for like, I don't know, you know, if I, I actually, I mean, I was a skinny 13 year old girl, but I ate way more than six tortilla chips, but you know, it certainly doesn't work for the big giant six foot football players and all of that. So, so just that's my like analogy with social emotional learning that, that we can, right. can, you know, can't we have an idea that's good and we just allow it to, you know, organically replicate the ideas that are better tend to move forward and, you know, and, and, and but we can still talk about it and we can still use bully pulpit style advocacy to, you know, message it it's yeah i agree with you i I think i think at the local level and that's luckily this isn't nationwide yet but there is i mean i'm worried about the uh you know these efforts to try to take and impose it you know again as as with common core you take a branded idea that sounds good and you say wow we have a real legitimate need and then you just throw in you know something that some powerful people cooked up in some private room somewhere and who knows what their their philosophy is whether it aligns with yours what their values are you know all of those things um are just you know being shoved into your kids classroom that's completely unfair and out of bounds and so i mean i think there there is hope for that sort of thing to be happening but i don't at least while you know while president trump is in place that's you know not going to happen at the federal level and so at the state and local level i mean i think it's the same thing with Common Core or anything else, people need to go to their school boards and their school boards and, and, you know, whoever's deciding need to look for hard evidence, you know, and I'm not talking about, oh, we have come up with our own studies, you know, that show, I mean, everybody's got studies, right? I mean, an actual, you know, double blind trial or, you know, real testimonies of, of, of small group experience working and spreading and then working again when it, you know what I mean? T- over time and trial and experience, real genuine results, you know, for vulnerable people. So we're not experimenting using vulnerable people like they're guinea pigs, which is offensive. Well, I see, I don't see it's too much. I don't personally see it as too much of an experiment to talk to kids every once in a while about what it is to be a good person or just to talk to, especially the kids who maybe are never hearing that at home. Joy Pullman, you and I uh, exist in a pretty narrow Venn diagram intersection of two things, which is Ed Reform School Choice, and also media. You're mm-hmm. where you and I both in both of those little circles. So, how do you think the media have been covering K through 12 education? Has it changed in the last few years? Uh, and I don't know. What's your overall assessment? Well, I mean, that's kind of a hard question to answer, you know, because media is singular, but you know, really, actual media is plural. I think uh, I think we that that the education media. Uh, you know, education reporters, the education week types of uh, publications, they do a really good job doing both the official story and getting into classrooms to talk to teachers. And I love to hear, I mean, my number one interest is hearing from teachers and parents because they are the people who have, you know, the stories, the experience on the ground. Um, They are not grand wizards with the theory to impose on the nation. You know, they're a mom or a teacher with 
Jack and Cindy and Julia, you know, and, uh, you know, in their classroom that they're looking at and thinking about. Anyway, so, I mean, so well, I, well, let me give you is, let me give you some examples. So take the red yeah. for red strikes that happened the last couple. Oh, of years. sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, so, uh, what I would read over and over again is any yeah. state where the average teacher salary was below the national right, average. Right, quarters right. would cite to me how much the national the uh, state average was below the national average. But yeah. if there was a teacher strike in Chicago or Seattle or these places where the teacher salaries are above the national yeah, average. Yeah. Nary what cricket sounds about well, that's what I meant about the official story, right? And they and they and and the education reporters have a lot of sympathy for teachers and what is perceived to be teachers' interests, but they're not very good at seeking out the teachers who don't share the union party line, as you're pointing out. And the other thing they really don't know is like they, I mean, typically. You probably know this, um, but, you know, typically education reporters like the entry level reporter beat. Right. So it's a job you're making twenty five thousand dollars a year. You just got of college. You got student loans. You don't know anything. And I have been that person. I know you don't you know, it's you don't understand that you don't know anything when you're 23. But, you know, when you get to be a decade or two older than, you you know, you understand, wow, I didn't know anything Um, that (laughs) anyway, you know, so. Um, and you have, and, and they will of... often quote. They will often quote um, in these kinds of strike stories or whatever. Anyway, they'll yeah, quote a yeah. whole bunch of people who are either the union yeah, or yeah. rank and file teachers about right. why you know the union is correct. And then they'll quote maybe the one governor or the one yep. you know school board president. And they, and they never provide context. Like so for I mean so for example, this would seem to be this should be included. I mean so when I was the editor at School Reform News, you always you know include in basic what I call meat and potatoes context information. How much is the state already spending to educate each kid per year? Right. You know, that is usually some the number is usually double what the people in that state assume that it is. Right. That's really important information for them making a decision about how much to pay teachers. Another really important context information that's never included is how many non-teaching staff are, you know, public schools in the state employing compared to teaching staff. You know, because, again, I mean, so nationwide, it's it's one non-teacher for every teacher. That's been a huge, as you know, you know, Bob, huge dramatic increase in staffing over since 1973. And if that had just been slowed down to the rate of uh, increase in kids going to schools, teachers could automatically right now have, you know, depending on the state, between like an eight to $16,000 pay raise with no increase in taxes or, or taxpayer outlay. I mean, sure. so those are or, or as, as, as a chat, if chat these reporters, and... you know, read a couple of studies uh, that are basically, or even just, I mean, the, the first one I talk about how much the state spends, you just can go right over to the National Center for Education Statistics federal agency and just get the data right from there. And again, I think that should be included in every, you know, every article that's talking about spending because again, it's important, I mean, context. You don't know if you're spending too much or too little until you know what the existing spending amount is, how much that compares to other states, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and in a related vein, Chad Alderman of Bellwether Education Partners had a recent report, and we're about to do a video with him on it. Mm. But he he kind of shows that only twenty percent of teachers really benefit from the existing yeah, pension system because half of them absolutely. leave before they vest. Another thirty yeah. percent or so, uh, you know, vest, but in a minimal way, not to the full value that they could get through a different kind of pension uh, yeah. retirement system. And yet, so it's it's benefiting these twenty percent of, of mm-hmm. you know. We're probably the, the spokespeople and the union leaders who are really happy with this system. They are, and the yeah. media the never said the media doesn't yeah. say the system is designed for those twenty percent and not the other eighty percent. The media right. pitches it as if the entire pension system benefits all teachers, and so you have a big story. You know, basic Matt Bevins probably lost the governorship because 
you know, he he wanted to reform the pension problem. But there, but the media was never saying what I just said. Yeah. And they, I mean, and that, I mean, and that they're failing in a basic duty to the voters, right? Because again, how can the voters make basic budget decisions with not actually knowing anything about the existing budget? It's just really media malpractice. I mean, then there's all kinds of other factors. Again, I mean, teacher pensions, for example, I mean, not only that we have the problem with, you know, the 20% benefit and the 80% of teachers, you know, get hosed, but then we have the problem of, Almost every single state is paying a large amount, you know, each year of money that should be going to the classroom. You know, some, a percentage is, you know, much 20%, 30% of that money is going to retired teachers because former teacher pensions were extremely generous. I mean, some teachers sure. in some states like Illinois could retire at 55, you know, full, you know, 80% of their highest salary at age 55. Sure. And, you know, and, 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 and again, yeah, I know teaching and my husband's a teacher. It's a it's a emotionally exhausting job, but we're not talking like, you know, you've been in combat and you need a break. You know, you can keep teaching till they're at least 65, the usual retirement age. Right. You know, so I mean, so there's another thing taking money out of the classroom, out of, you know, current teachers pay. And then anyway, and then another one is you never, never look. I mean, again, this is basic statistics. I had to actually since I went to Hillsdale, I had to take a basic um, economics class, Econ 101. So we learned that using the average any of anything like a teacher's salary really isn't very useful information what's better you know to use in that kind of instance is the median right because sure. it tells you what's more common the middle the, average, the middle player average yeah. is hiding hiding you know you know a lot of huge difference between the fact that oh my goodness maybe 30 percent of the teachers in this state are making you know eighty thousand dollars or more plus benefits wow that's you know and that's more than the median income in, in most states right sure. so again uh Another context information that's never given to the public. Right. I was referring to the uh, Matt Bevins of Kentucky. We're going to have to leave it there. She is Joy Pullman. And if you want to follow her on Twitter, it's at Joy, P-U-L-L-M-A-N-N. Thanks so much, Joy, for your time. Uh, uh, really, I uh, appreciate it. And, uh, and, and, and good luck with your, with your future work as the, uh, as the uh, executive editor of The Federalist. Great. Thanks for having me. And now with our tweet of the week from the great Mike Antonucci. Um, and he says, we have 8.5% more public school employees than we had at this time last year. So uh, what, what Antonucci here is talking about is uh, another hiring boom in public education. And he goes on to describe the latest report from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics saying that it was good news for the economy, but even better for public school hiring. And what he's talking about here, what he's pointing out, Bob, as you well know, is just the continued bloat, the continued bureaucratic bloat in our public schools. What I like the best about this is the end of his, uh, of his article here, Will we stop when we have one teacher for every student? And so pointing, <laughs> no. out, pointing out sort of how, how no. ridiculous, to the point, right, we were just talking about earlier about uh, schools with declining enrollment and school closures and mergers, yeah. among other things. And here we are now thinking about will we stop when there's just one teacher for every student? Some, some would think that's good. I would say probably not great for sustainable public education. Yeah. Uh, my commentary of the week I picked was from Mike McShane of Ed Choice, who wrote, no school choice is not gutting Ohio's public schools. And he quotes a couple of people saying, for example, Peter Green, a Forbes writer, saying vouchers are gutting Ohio's schools. 
gutting and quotes and a big link. Uh, they're exploding, according to one blogger. It's huge, according to a representative of the Ohio Education of School <laughs> Business Officials. And then he says, wow, that's kind of interesting. It's still only 1.3% of the enrollment in the state of Ohio, and yet these people are having this apocalyptic language about boom. gutting and exploding and huge, and oh, it's just... it's." The sky is falling. Um, it's so terrible. It's, uh, you know, it's cats uh, sleeping with dogs. It's all kinds of awful. I don't know. So anyway, he goes on to also point out another kind of funny thing. He says, look, if you look at from 1999 to 2005, there was a 13.3% decrease in enrollment. And that's that happened before the voucher program existed. But no one was calling that a gutting and a, and a huge, horrible problem. It was just sort of general students moving around or going to private schools or moving out of the state altogether, stuff like that. And so anyway, so he's well, we always like to leave it to uh, to the great Mike McShane to to bring the data and, and, and give us all a little bit of a reality check. But maybe, Bob, yeah. maybe this will be the decade of the voucher boom. Who knows? Well, hey, hey, now every once in a while you say something that really gets me excited, Kara. That's you know, one. That's I, one I, I try my best, and that, my friends, is uh, is the end of this fourteenth episode of the Learning Curve. Next week we will be with Will Fitzhugh, founder of the Concord Review, which is an international journal that has published high school students' history essays for thirty years. Great guy, really cool project, something fun to talk about. Looking forward to it. So I'm going to work on staying healthy and warm up here in Boston. You do the same, my friend, and enjoy the end of a decade. And Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all our our, our gentle listeners. Thank you so much. 